Today I welcome Philip Britton, MBE, Headmaster at Bolton School in the UK. In this episode, I discuss social mobility, decision-making as a leader, leadership restructuring and transformation, and future school thinking. I want to talk about your social mobility because Bolton School was recently recognised as a finalist in the UK Social Mobility Awards. Why is it so important to provide bursaries to pupils who may need additional financial assistance to afford an independent education? There are two strands of answer to that. Let me explore both. One is very specific to Bolton School, which is that that social mobility accessibility piece really drives the school and has done since the early 1900s when the current foundation was set up by Lord Leverhulme. You're very focused on providing an aspirational education for the young people of Bolton, irrespective of means. Now, clearly, that's been more or less difficult throughout the intervening century. It was a direct grant school and a very successful one. Lots of assisted places here at that time. Governors hugely far-sighted in setting up a bursary campaign really in the late 80s, early 90s, when that wasn't fashionable, which has placed us in a terrific position now to be able to follow that social mobility agenda. So there's a very specific Bolton reason to that. It's part of the DNA of what this school is about to have, that social mobility piece. One in five on bursaries here at present, ambitions that that will be one in three in 2030, and quite realistic ambition as well, not aspirational ambition, really nailed on possibilities of making that uh, something that is real to us. But the more general, wider answer to that uh, hinges for me in independent schools in the modern age, uh, having a, a moral purpose. What is our purpose in society? Sometimes that argument starts in the wrong place. It starts in the, well, there are state schools and there are independent schools. Effectively, the narrative often is why do independent schools exist when there are state schools? I take that from a completely different place and always have done that. After all, independent education, philanthropists being interested in education far predates a state sector. Bolton School was here 450 years before the states ever got round to thinking schools were a good thing. And throughout all of that time, some people paid for their education who could afford it, and some were supported in affording that education who could not. And what I see is that there is a moral imperative that independent schools drive the social mobility agenda and that they are not seen as a problem and a blocker to social mobility, but that they are seen as part of the solution to social mobility. I often say here in my own school, for example, I think we can argue we are one of the most diverse schools in the local area. And people laugh that out of court. They say, how could you be when you're a fee-paying school? But actually, just think about it a moment. Uh, Other highly selective by catchment areas, strong state schools, uh, just how much are you paying for the house that gets you to that catchment area? What cultural capital are you having to bring in order to fulfil the entry requirements for those state schools, which do exist, even though they would argue they don't have an entrance exam, a grammar school, the cultural capital you require to gain access to that, where our bursary application process is highly focused on potential, not on prior experience, or obviously people applying for bursaries who we're looking to engender in social mobility are not going to have a hinterland of having read things or having a favourite cuisine But that's not the questions we should be asking an 11-year-old because obviously they don't have a favourite cuisine 
because cuisine is probably not a word that's been used. And they won't have a favourite book and they might not have seen a favourite film and certainly not been to the theatre. So we really are focused on interviewing for aspiration and testing for potential. For me, the, the social mobility agenda has those two strands, specifically for the school I work at. But generally, I do have a passion for the whole of the independent sector, noting that one of the, the moral compass we should have, the moral imperative we should have, is being part of the solution to social mobility and never allowing ourselves to be boxed into the corner of being seen to be the problem. Because those who think if only we didn't exist, everything would be fine, are just so wrong. If we didn't exist, there would be one-fifth of the pupils here who would not be at the top-performing state schools in Bolton. They would be at average-performing state schools in Bolton, and that is not good enough for them. Yeah, I mean, you talked about the moral imperative. The independent sector always gets a bad rub. And I had Julie Robinson, the CEO of the ISC, on the podcast last year. And it is a difficult position to be in because you have all this access to wealth, to, to resources, and it's how you present it. A lot of the time is, you know, the state's always getting handouts and charity and I'll come and maybe use our facilities. Do we need to be talking about it in a much wider, more accessible language so that kind of the private state school divide doesn't become wider, particularly on the back of the last 18 months or two years of lockdown? Absolutely so. There are some just, just very obvious truths, aren't there? You can't ever do good to people. You must do good with people. That is a trite phrase, but it has such power in this, in this space because uh, a lot of that early partnership work, a lot of the do-good in come and use our facilities. Of course, if people didn't come and use the facilities, they wouldn't have facilities to use. So it's an obvious good, but it isn't actually what it's about. I think the way I see things is that there are three strands to embedding our schools in their local community. One is the, the bursary program so that a school can be accessible to as many people as possible, but that will never be everyone who could be here. Then there is making sure the fee regime at an independent school is sensible and proportionate, but not requiring fees that are getting out of hand and extortionate, and also fees that are predictable for parents. I think that the gesture of you know, zero fee rise one year, 7% the next is no good at all to a fee-paying parent. And many of our fee-paying parents are not rich. They are just making a life choice of deciding to spend their resources, limited though they may be, on an education for their daughter or their son. And I think then the third strand is to be sure that our schools are just part of the landscape of education in their local areas. Some years ago, after much thought, I decided that trying to play out these arguments on a national stage is essentially hopeless. But what our schools can do is play out these arguments locally, where people locally know what we are for, know what we can do, know what we are useful for, respect us as people. And a lot of that national narrative is theoretical. It's all lovely talk. But actually, when people get down to it, if Bolton School were not to be here with its resource, the local educational infrastructure of Bolton would be impoverished. And the way we do that is just with real partnership. And partnership is both ways, recognising what other schools in the local environment are much, much better at than we are and accepting that and drawing on that and recognising where we can provide a critical mass, where we can provide a catalyst for something. 
where we can provide a venue. And you touched on the online learning. I think that's a really good example of what independent schools can do for the country. And we should just tell it how it is. What actually happened at the beginning of lockdown is that independent schools very often had the resource, of course, in terms of IT infrastructure, but they also had an imperative. We had to educate pupils because our parents were paying for their pupils to be educated. And a solution of, we'll see how this goes, I wonder how lockdown will play out, was not on the table for us. At day one of lockdown, we had to be providing at-home lessons that people felt they were able to pay for. And I think that allowed our schools to demonstrate what could be possible. And I don't think it should be left unsaid that effectively lockdown two, most state schools did what independent schools did in lockdown one. And I'm not being vainglorious in that statement. That's not saying we got it right the first time. Why didn't you? State schools could not have got it right the first time because the laptop rollout hadn't happened. The infrastructure to allow the safeguarding around those online lessons was not there. The capability in staff use of IT was not always there at all schools. All the Oak Academy did was provided what independent schools had modelled. And I think that's just a really good for example because it could be presented as a problem. Independent schools stole a march again. Look at them. But actually, why not present that as a, as a really positive thing? Independent schools did what actually a marketplace does well for all possible industries. It shows innovation. It shows nimbleness. And then state schools can model and follow and partner and be engaged with that. And so many independent schools did share that learning and that experience in an appropriate way in their local context. And I was part of actually the uh, sort of facilitating that bridge between the independent and the state sector because, no, you're absolutely right. There were some amazing schools and school leaders who were really pushing the online learning, trying different ways, whether, you know, the blended way of doing live versus recorded versus a bit more flexible. They learned it first, right? They were the guinea pigs that trialed it all. But what they ended up doing was providing a resource pack and a rollout plan that all other schools in the, on the planet could actually dip in. And some independent schools obviously followed, but a lot of the state schools did too. I suppose my biggest worry when we talk about social mobility is that I just feel that it's got wider because so many of the state school pupils were out of school. They didn't get the amount of lessons. And obviously the privilege of being in an independent sector is you didn't really miss out on that education. Do you believe that this is the case? And what do you think independent schools or what should we all be doing to help mend this gap? I think there were inequalities during lockdown, but those were inequalities within schools as well as between schools. My own school here, we saw huge differences in the domestic setting that our pupils were in. The resource might be there, but our bursary pupils would be obviously working in a very different home context to some other pupils. And that would be played out in all schools, state or independent. It was a lot about home background, the, the busyness and engagement of parents, many of those key worker parents essentially necessarily being away from home and sometimes not being able to have their children in school. What it did do was draw out inequalities of those pupils who by their nature were self-motivated with those who need a little bit more collaborative learning because learning on screen was not easy. So I think inequality developed within schools, within classes, and of course, between schools, because the resource and nimbleness of the independent sector managed that to be the case. 
And I think the answer to helping with inequality is the same answer as for partnership and social mobility in general. Our schools must embed themselves with their local community in the right way. And I think what the right way is will depend on how that educational landscape looks locally. Here we are part of the Bolton Learning Partnership where the 16 or 17 senior school around Bolton meet regularly, share ideas, are all part of the same subject hubs. We are considered to be a natural part of the infrastructure of education in Bolton, helping where we can, learning where we can. That works for us. For other independent schools over time, it's been sponsoring a particular academy or engaging in an academy chain. And that would not work for us here locally in Bolton. It's better that we engage with across the piece, but it has been the right solution for other schools. Still other schools can give up their infrastructure online or, or their learning or, or sponsor and engage in academy chains. Lots of independent school teachers are involved as governors in a wide range of schools. And I think that's another way to share expertise. I do think the future for independent education and where we must position ourselves in terms of the national narrative is making our schools as accessible as possible, as I've described, and partnership work, and being really clear that that isn't an either or. It isn't, shall we do partnership work or are bursaries more important, or should we keep fees tight? It must be making our schools as accessible as we possibly can and engaging in partnership in the wider world. Because communities matter and communities need to be rich and diverse for them to thrive. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. I want to quickly touch on you were invited to be a member of the British Empire, carrying the letters MBE after your name. How did you come about to receive this recognition? In my early years, I was much involved in physics teaching first, a passion for physics teaching. And then through the Institute of Physics, I was much involved in curriculum design and teaching teachers, encouraging people to become physics teachers. And that has been a passion for many years uh, along the way, innovating with how groups of physics teachers met and also innovating with how if we couldn't have physics specialists teaching physics, how we could best support non-specialist teaching physics. I guess a whole range of essentially voluntary activity through my professional body was uh, recognised in that way. And it's, it's always nice to be recognised personally, but as everyone who has uh, achieved such recognition, invariably, yes, a personal honour, but also a reflection on all of the good work that has been done by so many in a field that is, is so important, because uh, I've never believed the right thing to do is sit around and worry about how many physics teachers there are. We have to do something about that. I once quipped that there were probably more giant pandas than there were physics teachers in the UK, and giant pandas had a breeding program. So that obviously wasn't the way forward for physics teaching, but something had to be. And has it helped you open doors that were otherwise closed to help you deliver on your educational vision and your passion for physics? Well, I think people know you by your actions and deeds, don't they? Where I've, in education, had a passion either for my subject or for social mobility or for partnership work, and those, I guess, would be the areas that I've been particularly engaged with. If people know you by what you have not said, but what you have done, then it does ease partnership work because people are more 
uh, willing to engage in discussion and also have a sense that if something is discussed in a meeting, there, there would be the willingness to have a go and try out. I imagine undoubtedly past records and recognition probably do enable people to want to partner more than they might otherwise. And that's all to the good, because then we can draw an institution along with us and, and make Bolton School and, and me a force for good. You've recently taken on a new position as head of foundation at Bolton School and now oversee both the girls and boys divisions as well as the new primary division. How has this transition been on top of all your other responsibilities? How have you found the time? So far, so good. A hugely important moment for a foundation like Bolton School. So like many schools, I guess, how we come to be is an accident of history. There was a long established 500 years old boys grammar school, a Victorian girls high school. They effectively were put together at the early part of the 1900s by Lord Leverhulme saying he would endow some buildings, but only if they got together. A man hugely committed to gender equality at that stage or The buildings we have here that not everyone will know about are literally identical for a girls' division and a boys' division built in the 1920s when still we were wondering what women could vote for or whether they should. So here's a far-sighted pioneer of women's education alongside that long-standing vision for boys' education. And around all of our schools in the independent sector, we've variously had infants and juniors and perhaps not necessarily organised those as in the way that we might. We've uh, occasionally opened nursery schools. In itself, you know, that's a school for 970 boys. That is a huge, huge independent day boys school on its own, never mind part of the foundation. The girls division here is a, is a senior school for 870 senior girls in itself is, again, a huge undertaking. And to wrap that all up, taking the idea of foundation much more seriously and having that uh, head of foundation as a point of proactive leadership, especially across the social mobility and national and regional engagement and partnership work, but also making those connections within all of those schools in the foundation so that we genuinely do do the best of both worlds is important. And, you know, I think there's another part to it as well. Even in my 13 years as head of the boys division here, what a head does has moved on so much and there is so much more to it than there used to be. Adding the capacity that my new post does to us to allow the heads of boys division, girls division and primary division to actually do the job a head used to do, which is nurture and develop the young people in the school and the colleagues in the school will be really powerful as well. Because I think as the head's role has expanded, one of the things that regrettably takes second stage far too often is the pupils and the colleagues. And yet that is what the school is all about. So we see great promise for developing that social mobility agenda, but also developing what it is for a head to lead their particular section of the school, being really focused on the people in it. And that we see as being uh, really good. And as I say, how's it going? Well, we're half a term in, so far, so good. I mean, it's interesting when you talk about structural changes. I mean, schools and groups of schools, I mean, they are large organisations, they're large companies. And we've seen a lot of schools take on the kind of setup more like companies with a C-suite and a CEO and an executive director. Did you ever dally with with moving down that way of labelling and titling to get more corporate? Or did you want to keep it quite school-oriented? 
For us, it was really, really important to use words that mean something in the context of the school. And I, I would suggest, although every independent school is different, that that is a really important thing to be true to what you are rather than pretend to be something that you are not. But no doubt, of course, lots of governors are business people. And there is a direct mapping between every single role in school and a corporate structure. Obviously, I get called head of foundation because foundation means something in the context of Bolton School. It's a word that was invented in 1915, not yesterday. So that matters to us. But equally, of course, I'm the CEO. That's what I am. Will I call myself that? No, I won't. Because it means nothing to anyone who matters in Bolton School. It means nothing to the pupils. It means nothing to the teachers. If parents don't care, it has no resonance at all. But being head of a foundation that people care about does. Is a bursar a chief finance officer? Of course they are. But they don't need to be called a chief finance officer. All of us have a chief operating officer, but that's not what we call it. And I think knowing those mappings so that we can draw on also schools, it's important that they do recognize that they are organizations and they are structures. And there's a lot to learn from how other organizations work as out of the educational sector. But that doesn't mean that you have to take on terminology that's alien. You take on the ideas which are not alien at all and map them onto words that mean things here. So the word division seems weird. Is that divisive? Well, it isn't. It's a word that a lot of people in Edwardian times decided was the best way of bringing together a girls' school and a boys' school. So you make the most of that word, and you celebrate that girls' division means something to your 110 years of alumni, and boys' division means something, and you shape the words to suit the narrative of the modern day. And I think that is, in organizational structures and managing change, that is so important, isn't it? When alumni visit schools, and I imagine all of our schools, not just here, they invariably say, wow, it seems like only yesterday since I was walking down these corridors. There is so much that is familiar because the ethos is familiar. But that ethos and purpose needs to be brought to life in our present age. You know, we, we embraced e-learning here really early on. That wasn't something that was going on in 1516. Of course it wasn't. But I imagine whoever was teaching here then was at the forefront of their game in teaching. And that's exactly what we are now. So I think there is a lot to transformational change in organizations. And I think it's a lot about respecting the history of the school and drawing on modern ideas and putting the two together and using language that people in the schools understand. But you need leadership and vision to be able to do that because change is not easy. You mentioned transformation. And I think in today's educational landscape, transformation is absolutely the word and it's absolutely needed because you look outside, you look at the young men and women who are coming through your divisions that you're stewarding. You know, we are trying to get them fit for purpose and relevant for the future world. And we as adults who are in that position of responsibility and power have a huge responsibility to be able to role model appropriateness and also understand what's going on so it is relevant to when they get out there. If you were to look in your crystal ball, because you do sit at the top of a very well-established and successful school with great history, if you were to look forward 10 and then 50 years, what differences would you see at Bolton School? 10 years piece uh, first, because that, that's a feasible length of time. And what, what are going to be the big issues in education? What are schools going to be doing? Technology will continue to play its part, but it will always continue to play its part alongside real people educating real people. 
nailing that one down once and for all would be really, really powerful for those who champion e-learning and education. And let me stick my neck out. There will not be a time when computers are educating our young people. There is already a time when computing, AI, e-learning is absolutely one of the tools of the trade that teachers must use. But an education is about far more than just learning things. It's about that role modeling. It's about an apprenticeship in how to be a human being. And to have that apprenticeship in how to be a human being, you have to have role models who can do that. So uh, that's what is not going to be happening in 10 years' time. There will not be robots teaching people. But I do think there will be AI helping practice, helping those homework, running the uh, intervention sessions, the how did that maths problem work. I can see lots of that being done, lots of that repetitive, tell me again, madam, tell me again, sir, how does that work? I can picture pupils asking a computer that because that would be a better use of time when human beings are doing something else. What are human beings going to be doing? They're going to be role modeling a lot of social change that is going to be occurring because I think the pastoral life of a school is going to be front and center. And I think teachers who are passionate about their subjects can also be passionate about young people growing up. And that is not an either or as it's so often portrayed. Because what adults face in the next few years is educating young people to live in a world that the adults themselves didn't live in. And we've seen that already, still are seeing it with social media. We don't know how to educate young people about social media because we can't remember what we did when we were young. And our grandparents certainly can't remember what they did when they were young. And that really hasn't happened since people wondered what the hell you were meant to do when crossing the road in front of a car instead of a horse. It's a generational change. And I think that is really important, how we nurture and educate and support. And that's talked about in terms of well-being and mental health agenda, isn't it, nowadays? But it's also about being open-minded. It's being open-minded to actually the challenges that the young people do have right now. And, you know, your point about we don't know. What we can't do as adults is go, well, I didn't do that when I was young. It's completely different. What we've got to do is we've got to put ourselves in the shoes of the boys and the girls, the young men and the women who are coming through education and go, well, I've done anything differently if I was their age. What we have on our side is the luxury of experience. So, but what we do not lack is we don't have enough of rather, is probably the knowledge of what is really going on. I think if that's something we can be doing more in schools to plug social mobility, it's to take time because we don't take enough time to understand what is going on in these black boxes that we all hold. They're dangerous, but incredibly powerful, right? We always fall down the side of they're really bad, you know, screen time, you know, predators, online bullying, all of that stuff. When we're just hiding the problem, we're masking the problem when we should be more positive and go, when they leave your school, they're all going to have one of these and we need to teach them how to use it responsibly. I know we can talk for a long time and maybe we can have a part two all about the 50-year version, but I do agree with you. I don't think we'll have robots because people still need people to inspire them and that only comes to human-to-human contact. Philip, thanks ever so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.